Moving back to pages three and four, we come to our study outline. And what we've been doing, these have been standalone messages having a Christmas theme. And the first two have kind of been historical in nature. Uh, Last Sunday, I I did one that was more history. Uh, This Sunday is that way as well. And then next Sunday, we will pivot to the actual Christmas story, and we will be going through that until we go right on through the Christmas Eve uh, services. But today, I I think even if you're not a history buff, I think you're going to find today fascinating, as I did, as we talk about the real person behind St. Nicholas who became Santa Claus. And sometimes we see Santa Claus as the enemy. It's Jesus versus Santa Claus, all right? And if you're a Christian, you're for Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Christ, you're for Santa Claus. It's like Jesus versus Santa Claus. And I believe after a half an hour of this study, you're gonna say, you know what? Here's, we, we can follow the example of Nicholas, the real life guy behind the myth and the legend, is a guy by the name of Nicholas. He was a pastor in Myra in what is today the nation of Turkey. And he was a pastor there. And I believe his example is one we can follow as he followed the example of of Christ. Now, when we talk about St. Nicholas, I want to make it clear that the Bible teaches we are all saints. Uh, We don't have to pray through a saint to get to God. We can go directly to God through his son, Jesus Christ. All followers of Christ are saints. But that's the common name within our culture, St. Nicholas, from which we eventually, the myth and legend grew till we got Santa Claus today. But what I'm going to try to do is separate the legend and the myth from the history of the man, the pastor, Nicholas of Myra. Now, I want you to know I'm particularly nervous at the 945 service because the uh, beloved church history professor at Fuller Seminary, Dr. Jim Bradley, I believe sits in the balcony here at 945. So he will give me a grade, an A, B, or a D, or an F, uh, after this service is over. But we're going to try to separate out the myth and the legend to get back to the real person. And I believe you will find that he's a wonderful example in the Christian life. Remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Well, this is a guy that if we followed his example, we would also follow the example of Christ. And so rather than Jesus versus Santa Claus, it's all about Jesus. The season is all about Jesus. Uh, the Jesus uh, center of it, but also even the Santa Claus is, it originates in something that was a Christ follower that can be an example to us. Now he lived between 270 and 343 A.D. So 270 A.D., he was born, died around 343 A.D. He was born in a town that's mentioned in the Bible, in Acts 21, verse 21, in a town that Paul went to at the end of his third missionary journey. It says, After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos, the next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. Let's put the map up there. Patara is what is today the nation of Turkey. And right near it, he was born in Patara. And that's where Paul visited on his way back from his third missionary journey back to Jerusalem. But eventually became the pastor in Myra, as you see up there, which is a town near his birthplace of Patara. He was born to godly Christian parents And he was on fire for Jesus at a young age. Very young age, he becomes passionate in following after Christ. Reminds me of Timothy. As Paul writes to him, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Uh, Adam English, who's a 
history professor at Campbell University in North Carolina. He wrote a book called The Saint Who Would Become Santa Claus. He writes, throughout Nicholas's boyhood, the whole region of Lycia convulsed in religious tumult. The church endured years of discrimination, intolerance, and outright persecution. So he was a leader in the church during a tremendous time of transformation. When he was born, the cause of Christ was a tiny little minority within the overall Roman Empire. Uh, It was illegal. It was persecuted. By the time he died, it had grown from 2 million followers of Christ to 34 million followers of Christ, over half of the Roman Empire. Literally, Jesus conquered Caesar during the lifetime of Nicholas. And it went from being an illegal, persecuted, fringe group of people to the official religion of the Roman Empire under the first Christian emperor, Constantine. So it's just an amazing transformation that took place, really uh, miraculous. Now we knew, like I said last Sunday, the miracle was the miracle of the resurrection and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. But secular historians look at it as, as possibly the greatest miracle in all of history. I just saw a poll, or not a poll, it was a result of research. They did a research of study of uh, the influence of people within human history. And it was actually a research project. And they came up with the 20 most influential people in human history. Now, no big surprise, Jesus was number one, okay? Jesus, number one. Uh, Muhammad was number three, and those made sense because Jesus, the founder of the largest by far uh, religion in the world, Muhammad, the founder of the second largest. But I was really surprised by number two on the list. And some of you that are history majors or maybe history teachers can explain this to me. Anybody want to guess who number two was? Anybody? It was Napoleon, Napoleon. And somehow Jesus, Muhammad, Napoleon, it didn't uh, fit for me. I guess if you're French, you kind of are cool for that. But at any rate, it goes Jesus number one, Napoleon number two, uh, Muhammad number three. But it really was a miracle what happened in the Roman Empire uh, during this time. Now, the thing he is most known for is being a generous giver. That's the most famous stories that are connected with him. He had a biographer uh, in 950 AD by the name Michael the Archimandrite. And he wrote his biography. And he said, when his parents departed from this earth to return to the Lord, they left him great wealth in gold and property. His parents died when he was young, 18 years old. They left him a fortune. Now, usually when 18-year-olds inherit a fortune, it's not a good thing. Okay? Two words, Paris Hilton. All right? That usually doesn't turn out well. Or some sports star signs a big contract when they're an 18-year-old. And, or some child star. We know how those work out. Child stars, uh, actors, and actresses. So normally when you give a fortune to an 18-year-old, it doesn't turn out well. But he was a godly young man. And look what it says here. They left him great wealth and golden property. Thinking hard about God's goodness, he asked God that he might dispose of his life and his assets in accordance with his will. And that's what we're to do also. We don't think of ourselves as being rich, but compared to world history, compared to others around the world, we all have inherited a fortune. Our generation is probably the richest generation anywhere in the world in all of human history. And like Nicholas, we have gotten a a fortune. And so at whatever age, even 18-year-olds, relatively speaking to the rest of the world, have inherited a fortune. And here's what we need to do thinking hard about God's goodness. We need to ask God that he might dispose of our lives and his assets in accordance with his will. That's what the Momentum Campaign has all been about. 
Investing for eternity rather than just temporary stuff that's here today and gone tomorrow. But investing for eternity. Thinking hard about God's goodness. Asking God that he might dispose of our lives and our assets in accordance with his will. Uh, His biographer said there were two verses that were very influential for him. One was Psalm 143, verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. And in Proverbs 11, verse 17, those who are kind benefit themselves. Now, uh, the most famous story about him had to do with him being a fighter against human trafficking. How many until this moment ever thought of Santa Claus as a fighter against human trafficking? He was Pastor Tomiko before there was Pastor Tomiko. Uh, he was a fighter against human. See, tem- there's a temptation that uh, many uh, p- p- people in poverty have had around the world. They have it today. They had it certainly in the past, like this father as well, where they're tempted to sell their children into human trafficking, into slavery, particularly their girls, to be prostitutes because they're so desperate. And so there's this terrible temptation that is before them. And there was this father in his town that had three daughters. And he was so desperate financially for his family that he was about to sell them into uh, sexual slavery, into prostitution, into human trafficking. And here's what happens according to his biographer. Acting with caution, he gathered in a cloth a sufficient sum of gold coins, which he secretly threw through the window of the man's house and quickly returned to his home. When daylight came, the man got up from bed and found in the middle of the house a pile of money. He could not hold back his tears, but was overjoyed, amazed, and stunned. He gave thanks to God, but also tried to understand the meaning of this good fortune. Deciding to accept the gift as if it had been given by God, the father of the girls took the serendipitously found gold and noticed that the sum corresponded to the amount of money needed for a dowry. Without delay, he adorned the bridal chamber of his eldest daughter. And so his life once again became good, full of joy and peace of mind, thanks to the intervention of the holy Nicholas, who had created a way for his daughter to marry. (coughs) Now, according to the story, he did the same thing for the second daughter and the third daughter. (coughs) But here's where it begins to get exaggerated, and the myth and the legend kind of leads the historicity of the story. According to the myth and legend, (coughs) when it came to the third daughter, The father closed the window so he couldn't throw it through because he wanted to find out who was his benefactor, who was helping him in this way. And so according to myth, when he found the window shut, he climbed to the roof and dropped the money through the chimney, which happened to go into the stocking of the youngest daughter. And hence we have the origins and the beginning of the myth and legend of Santa Claus. But it is based in what we believe to be a somewhat true story of his generosity and really, as we would frame it today, a fighter against human trafficking. Adam English writes, more than public charity or personal purity, Nicholas devoted himself to justice, to righting the wrongs and correcting inequities. (coughs) Then the next thing, he was a leader, as I said, in the church during a time of great persecution, but during a time of great growth. The church grew from 2 million to 34 million. Now you would think it would be very exciting to be a pastor of a church during this time, but it was not because the the policies of the Roman Empire were to target the leaders of the church. They would go after the pastors for particular persecution to try to squelch the cause of Christ in this Jesus movement that was going on. Let's put our map back up there. (coughs) 
And so we see that he was born in Patara, and a pastor, they call him the Bishop of Myra, but really it just means a pastor. The pastor of the church in Myra died, and nobody applied for the job, okay? The pastor died, nobody wanted the job because that made you a target of the Roman Empire. So this young, Lee Christian person, Nicholas, he was kind of young and dumb, he, or he was young and had guts and courage. He lived according to Philippians 1.21, for to me to live as Christ is to die is gain. And all the older people didn't want any part of that pastor, but he became the pastor of the church in Myra when other people were afraid to do so. Next page of your study outline. No sooner had Pastor Nicholas settled into the routine of his new assignment than he was arrested on religious charges. The official policy of the imperial persecution was to target the leaders of the church. The inexperienced Nicholas was snatched up and carried to prison. He was led to the tortures where he was peppered with questions and accusations. He was threatened and beaten. Nicholas lived to see not only the end of the persecution, but also the rebuilding and revitalization of the church. So he was a godly example, he was a generous giver, he was a fighter against human trafficking, he was a leader in the early church during a time of intense persecution. How many have a little higher view of Nicholas than they did when they came in? Maybe Santa Claus, well the contemporary Santa Claus, I'm not defending that, but maybe his roots are not so bad after all. Maybe it's not Jesus versus St. Nicholas, but maybe it's following the example of St. Nicholas as he followed the example of Christ. Next, he was a defender of the faith against error. Now, speaking of error, just tell you a funny story. Uh, last Sunday, my, my daughter Abby uh, and, and Kimberly uh, were at the 8.30 service, um, even though they usually go to the later services, but they were at, at the 8.30 service because Kimberly had to take Abby to LAX to fly Alaska Airlines direct flight from LAX back to Washington, D.C. after the Thanksgiving holidays. And so she took off at one, and my son Andrew uh, had to work last Sunday as an air traffic controller at the regional center in Palmdale that kind of directs air traffic over the Pacific Southwest. And so Andrew is our quiet one. I mean, that's why you'll never see Andrew in our Christmas cards or anything. He's just kind of our shy, quiet one. In this crazy, boisterous family, there's an island of tranquility known as Andrew, our, our son, and um, our granddaughter Kylie, and uh, uh, she's being raised in a calm environment rather than what our children were raised in, and Jessica. So anyway, in Palmdale, he's an air traffic controller, and, uh, and so he texts Kimberly. And we love practical jokes in our family. And he texts Kimberly and he says, what's the number of Abby's flight, her Alaska flight? So he gave her Alaska flight, whatever, direct flight from LAX to, to uh, Washington, D.C. So he's talking to the pilot as the pilot goes through his airspace. And so we thought what he was going to do, because Abby just got engaged, that he was going to uh, go on the speaker and, and congratulate Abigail Gunderson for her engagement. But as the plane was landing in Washington, D.C., the stewardess comes on. And says, we've just received some information from traffic and, uh, air traffic control. And we have a passenger named Abigail Gunderson. And we'd like to all congratulate her because she just found out she's having twins. And <laughs> the whole plane explodes and clapping as she walks up. Everybody's congratulating her for her twins. And so... Um, Andrew, the quiet one in our family, wins the award for the best practical, uh, best practical joke. Well, uh, he was a defender of the faith against rumors and error and, uh, and lies that were going on. Now, Paul had warned young pastors many times 
Uh, He had warned young pastors like Nicholas, and, and specifically Timothy and Titus, about error creeping into the church uh, in the early days or any time throughout church history. First uh, Timothy 4, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, Faith, patience, love, endurance. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The last chapter that Paul wrote before he was executed by the Roman government in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear, what people want to hear rather than what God's word actually says. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Uh, Paul warned uh, Titus and said the leader in the church must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Titus 2, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Now, Nicholas was one of those people. There was an error that was going on in the early church, and he was one of the defenders of the faith against this error. Now, this is a tremendous oversimplification, but basically what it was is that what the church eventually taught at the Council of Nicaea is that Jesus, this is good for Christmas, he came and he was fully God and fully human, fully divine, fully human all at the same time. And so the word that they coined, it was actually Constantine, the Christian emperor who who came up with this word as being a strong word to to lock it down, this particular sound doctrine, that Jesus was of the same substance as God the Father. And it was a Greek word, homoousion. Ousion meaning substance, homo meaning the same. And so the term they came up with the Council of Nicaea is homoousion, that Jesus was made, was, was of the same, not, was eternal, not made, eternal of the same substance, homoousion of the Heavenly Father. And so a false error crept in, which is more like homoousion, that he was similar substance to the Heavenly Father, the God the Father, but not homoousion, the same, the exact same substance. And so this is where the debate went on. Um, This will show you what a geek I was in college, but I remember as a Bible major, there are a number of Bible majors on our track and and cross-country team at Wheaton College where I went to school. And so our joke that we thought was so funny when we were studying, we were all in the same Bible class studying this particular time in church history. And so whenever we'd run slow, we'd go, homoi usian, homoi usian, we'd chant. And then when we charged a hill, we'd run as hard as we could going, homo usian, homo usian. And we thought that was just hilarious. And so now you know the geek I was and the geeks I ran around with in uh, college. 
But what happened was is Constantine, the Christian emperor, called what was called the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD to settle this issue. And you'll see how they say it in, in the Nicene Creed. They say it multiple different ways to make it clear. Jesus, fully God and fully human at the same time, because that's where the cults came. Some cults overemphasize his humanity against his divinity. Some overemphasize his divinity against his humanity. You say, oh, how, how can you do that? Well, they, they would water down his humanity and say basically he was like a spirit, God, and he wasn't fully human. And so the Nicene Creed affirmed fully human, fully divine, fully God, fully human. Now, how many of you grew up in a church that ever recited the Nicene Creed? Okay, well, this is your moment. This is Episcopalian Presbyterian moment coming up right now. And the one you probably recited is not the one we have here. This is from the original Nicene Creed in 325, but probably what you recited as a kid in that church was uh, one, they, they tweaked it in a council, a church council they had in 381 AD. And so they made a few adjustments, and that's what most likely you said in your church growing up. But let's read the old one, the original one from 325 uh, AD, out loud together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten. That is of the essence of the Father. God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance. And now let's say this Greek word out loud, homoousion. Out loud together, homoousion, with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead and in the Holy Ghost. And all God's family said, amen. And so Nicholas was one of the defenders against the false teaching of that time. And so he was a defender of the faith. Now here's where probably myth and legend enters into it. But supposedly when uh, Arius, uh, one of the teachers of the false teachings on, on Christ at the Council of Nicaea, when he stood up and spoke, according to um, legend, uh, Nicholas went over and slapped him in the face. Um, we don't know if that happened or not. But uh, of course, those kind of things went on back then, you know, and they would, these things could get really physical sometimes. But according to legend, he slapped him in the face. But we do, we do believe he was there. And he was one of the ones at the Council of Nicaea that defended the faith. Adam English writes, Bishop Nicholas lived an extraordinary life. He endured persecution, witnessed the crowning of the first Christian emperor, and attended the first major ecumenical council in church history. Now here's another one. Confronter of the occult. He was basically an exorcist. How many ever thought of Santa Claus being an exorcist? Did that, did that ever occur to you? Uh, until you came to church here this morning. He was a confronter of the occult. Now, and Paul writes in Ephesians 6, verse 12, and, and there's a reason, I believe, why I wrote it to the church at Ephesus, because they were the headquarters for this occult Satan-worshiping group called the, ten, the, the Worshippers of Artemis. And, and she was an idol. The temple of Artemis is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, the temple of Artemis, and it was in Ephesus. Let's put our map back up there again. And you'll see, uh, first of all, that he was born in Patara. Uh, this is all in modern-day Turkey. 
he was pastored in Myra, but in the vicinity was Ephesus. At Ephesus, if you read Acts 19, a very powerful passage where Paul goes to Ephesus, he starts preaching against Artemis, this Satan-worshipping, occult, uh, idol-worshipping group there. And he preaches against it, and so people began to throw, not buy the idols anymore. And so it cut into the idol trade. And so the business people that sold Artemis idols got ticked off, and there's this huge riot, and Paul almost gets torn to shreds, and you read about it in Acts chapter 19. Well, this cult was still alive and well a couple hundred years later, when along comes Nicholas as a church leader in that area, and he led the attacks and the confrontation of this occult, of this form of Satan worship. Andrew of Crete writes, by your teachings, you toppled idol altars and leveled the houses of horrid demon worship. In their place, you raised Christ's sanctuary. Now, he didn't do it with violence. Michael the Archimandrite writes, he did not take up visible weapons, but relied on the invisible weapons of prayer and righteousness and armed himself with hope and firm confidence. This guy was a pretty cool guy, wasn't he? And so we can follow his example as he followed the example of Christ. And then finally, he was a finisher. And that fits in perfectly with our fall series, uh, Principles for Finishing Well, the Momentum Series, of uh, finishing through, uh, going, running through the, the finish line. You know, I had kind of a, something I went through on Thanksgiving Day that just like summed up the whole fall series we've been doing about being a church of not just starters, but finishers, and being Christ followers that are not just good starters, but good finishers. But the Purpose Church in Claremont, uh, last couple of years, we've run uh, what's called the Turkey Trot in Claremont, and many other people too, from our church and, and then from Purpose Church specifically as well. And they have these t-shirts that Pastor Jay made up saying running with purpose. And these purpose shirts are all over the place there at the Turkey Trot. And it's a 5K, 5,000 meters, 3.1 miles. And I'll admit to you, I was dreading it this year. We've done it as a family. There's been a family tradition that we run or walk it. Half the family walks it, half of it run it every Thanksgiving morning. I was really dreading it because I have just gotten in terrible shape this fall. It's been a very exciting time for our church, very dynamic time uh, this fall, but it's also been very busy and I haven't been running like I should be running. So I really dreaded it, not even thinking I, I can't run the whole thing. I'll have to run the first part of it and walk the second half of it. But it's amazing when you get surrounded by hundreds, even thousands of people, how much better you can run. It is just, it's why people do these 5Ks, because it's just amazing what you can do when you're surrounded by other people. So what I would do through the whole run is I would look for the purpose shirts. I would look for the, uh, the purpose, running with purpose shirts. And so I'd come up, my son John ran with me for a while, but then he left the old man behind and just went on ahead and left me behind. And then Debbie DeGrado, our organist and, and keyboardist here at the 945 service, came up with her, chatted for her a little bit. Later on, Mike and Terry Murray, who I believe go to the 945 service here and chatted with them about, they were just baptizing the Jordan River and we showed that a couple of weeks ago. So chatted with them. But about halfway through the race, I, I just said, you know what, this is it. I'm just gonna have to walk the rest of the way. I, I feel good. I, got, I ran the first half. I just cannot run. I'll just walk the remainder of the way. But then I came across one of our young adults, Stacy Fleming. And she turns to me and goes, you know, Pastor Glenn, it's all uphill the first half and it's all downhill the second half. And I'm like, you kidding? Really? She goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and I thought, well, no wonder I'm tired. I've been running uphill for a mile and a half. 
And I thought to myself, oh, I can finish if it's all downhill. That's like falling on top of yourself for just the next mile and a half. That, that, that's, not, that's not so bad. I, I can do that. And because of that encounter with Stacy, I was able to run the whole thing and just uh, flabbergasted. And just because of that one word of encouragement. And when it was all over, I thought to myself, that is exactly our mission statement as a church. Turn to the front of your program. If you have your program, turn to the, please turn to the front. And, and you'll see that our mission statement is purpose in Christ, in community for the journey. And that's so per- perfect because what we do is, as a church, we're all about finding, discovering our purpose in Christ, helping other people find their purpose in Christ, and then fulfilling it in community. It's amazing how much better you can run your Christian race surrounded by people than you can by yourself. So we do it in community for the journey, which leads us to be good finishers. Now, this is incredibly biblical. Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Hebrews 10, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The reason we get together in, in Sunday school classes and, and in life groups and Bible studies and support groups and church, church services is so we can spur each other on like we're in a race together toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each one another and all the more as you see the day, capital D, day approaching. See, there are two possible finish lines. The day that the writer of Hebrews is talking about here is the second coming of Jesus. So that might be our finish line. How many prefer that finish line? I do. But then the other one is our death. Second Timothy 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So we, we want to go through the finish line, whether that's our death is the finish line into heaven or whether it's the second coming of Christ which ushers us into heaven. That's our finish line, and we accomplish it best, our purpose, in Christ, in community, for the journey. His biographer finishes, after living for some time in the city of Myra, and this is about Nicholas now, and perfuming all with the sweetly, fragrant, and piously scented conduct of his life and pastoral duties, He left his mortal life to enter eternal rest. And so whether it's Jesus or whether it's even the origins of Santa Claus with Nicholas of Myra, this season is all about Christ. How many have a higher view of Santa Claus than you did when you came in? Now, I'm not talking the contemporary Santa Claus. We're not even going to talk about how he got so messed up today, you know, and, and, and came down that thing, you know. But his origins follow his example as he followed the example of Christ. Now, remember, it all starts by following Jesus. So would everybody please turn with me as we close down on the back of your program. And what better way to celebrate the Christmas season than to become a follower of Jesus? Because that's what it's all about. Either following Jesus or following the example of Nicholas, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, who followed the example of Christ. And here's the first thing, is to become a follower of him. Three simple steps. Admit your condition before God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
B, believe that Jesus is God's only solution to your condition. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then C, choose to follow Christ as your Savior and Lord. Jesus said, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. This could be your day. You're not here by accident. You're not watching online by accident. By divine appointment for this moment to pray this prayer silently as I pray it out loud. So whether you're watching online or you're here, uh, let's just go before the Lord in prayer. And I invite you to pray this silently as I pray it out loud. Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was and proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, December 8th, 2013, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's family said, amen. Hey, let's stand for the closing benediction. And as we stand, let me mention the prayer room is open. If you want prayer for anything, right that door right there. The deacons would love to pray with you, whether it's a physical need or a relational or spiritual need. They would love to pray with you. Um, remember to pick up the story. Great Christmas gift as you head out in the lobby. If you haven't got one of our Momentum packets, you weren't here a few weeks ago when I shared the vision for Momentum. It's there in CD, DVD, or you can go online. But these are available at each of the exits as you leave. Get a hold of those. I want to close with our benediction by reading Hebrews. We just did Hebrews 12, verse 1. But I want to add verses 2 and 3 to it as well. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, some of the translations say finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.